Hello and welcome back to Tales from a Cult Insider, the fun-loving podcast that uh, combs your hair, brushes your teeth, and ties your shoes. That's right, it does none of those three things. I'm sorry. However, we are here to tell some stories. This is Jared Garrett, your insider and former unwilling cultist and happy host who is drinking orange bubbly at this time. By bubbly, of course, I mean soda. In any case. Now, okay, let's do a specific thing. So I actually, my family, we buy Arrowhead bubbly sparkling water, and we add a little bit of a flavoring to it to make um, less harmful, less sugary soda, and I love it. It will keep my voice warm and soothing to your ears. Okay, so usually I begin the podcast with a quick recap, but I'm going to forego that because of the subject matter, or half of the subject matter, of today's episode. Friends, this is episode number 30-some thousand. No, it's 33. Episode 33, and it's called History and Life of Brian's Brightside. Uh, you know, to expand on that, this is a I'm going to be very specific about some of the history of the cult, just so y'all know. And uh, then I'm going to talk about some of the good stuff that I experienced growing up in this actual cult slash commune. So, uh, before I get to that, I have a question. <laughs> So, this is episode 33. Between, let's see, in the week between me recording and publishing episode 32, and now episode 33, uh, there have been something like 1,700 new listens of this podcast. Now, that that is a month or so, or maybe, that's no, not a month, that's like, that's about two months worth of listens in my usual uh, cadence and rhythm of listeners. And so, I have a question. My friends... Where did you come from? I would I would be delighted to know how you heard about this podcast. And this isn't just for you newcomers. It's actually for all you oldcomers and for all you veteran insiders who are not cultist insiders. You're just insiders of this podcast. I'd sure love to know how you heard about this podcast. So uh, did somebody tell you? Did you see it on Twitter? Uh, is, is, is your podcast platform advertising it somehow without charging me money, which is glorious. Um, I, I just, I really love to know how you heard about this podcast and what got you started and what, um, what kind of got you hooked that makes you listen as much as you do, because some of you are faithful and wonderful listeners. And I pray blessings upon you, your home, your multiple cows, and possibly even your pastures and fields. So um, let me know, email me at Jared at jaredgarrett.com. That's J-A-R-E-D at Jared Garrett, J-A-R-E-D-G-A-R-R-E-T-T.com. Let me know how you heard about the podcast or, you know, find me on Twitter. I'm just me, Jared Garrett on Twitter. Um, I'm very curious to know where y'all came from and also, you know, what you like about the podcast so far. Uh, this is uh, going to be an interesting episode, hopefully for you. There will be a, a fair amount of specifics. Uh, no questions to go through today, and that is just fine, but a couple of quick plugs. You're always able to support this podcast if you like. There should be a link in most platforms uh, where the description of this podcast is. You can also, uh, as always, tell all your friends, tell all your enemies, and maybe that's what made these sudden listens happen over this last couple of days. I'm not sure, uh, but I, I, I sure appreciate you guys. You guys are great. Thank you for being a part of this uh, journey for me. Uh, the journey... Uh, and this podcast is coming slowly to a close. Um, I don't think I'll actually get all the episodes out before the end of the year, given that it's December. But I, um, I'll do what I can to to get it out with some speed. I don't want to draw it out too long. I'm not, you know, 
Steven Spielberg making sure you know that, hey, everybody's fine, everybody's fine, like at the end of uh, Minority Report. No, really, everybody's fine. They're married again. No, really, everybody's fine. She's pregnant. No, really, everybody's fine. Those mentalist uh, psychics are all healthy and have hair now, and one of them's pregnant too, or something like that. Anyway, uh, it's a pretty okay movie based on a wild story by Philip K. Dick. Okay, let's get right into today's podcast uh, subject. Again, it's called History and Life of Brian's Bright Side. So history, I want to I wanna really get into some specifics for you. Now, you could go and read this on your own. Uh, I'm going to summarize a lot of what I read, read here. I am, I am going, I mean, I've talked about some of the stuff, so there'll be a bit of a, of a repeat, but with some specifics and some of my own um, perspective on some of the events of the process. So if you were to go to Wikipedia, uh, the Process Church of the Final Judgment, you would read this first line. Uh, the Process Church of the Final Judgment, commonly known as the Process Church, was a religious group established in the United Kingdom in 1966. Its founders, and then the second line, of course, its founders were the British couple, Marianne McLean and Robert de Grimston, and it spread apart, across parts of the United Kingdom and United States during the latter 1960s and 70s. Some scholars of religion classified it as a form of Satanism and being an insider of it. Um, as far as I know, and as far as my experience went, it was not a Satanist cult. Was it before I was born? I don't know. Um, I don't know what rubric or criteria people are using to classify things as Satanism. But the cult I was in, when I was aware of it, was very much not. It was extremely vanilla Christian. Now, let's talk a little bit about these two, Marianne McLean and Robert de Grimston. I never knew either of them. The schism that I've talked about before happened the year I was born, the month I was born, very possibly. And I'll get into that a little bit. Um, Marianne McLean. So uh, really quite an interesting lady here. Um, she was a co-founder of the Process Church of the Final Judgment. She was born in Glasgow, Scotland. She was the aunt of the girl I had a crush on. If you're not sure what I'm talking about, um, you need to uh, go to episode 24 from season one. Um, it's called, Okay, I Had a Crush. So uh, she grew up poor uh, and so on. Uh, she um, moved over to uh, the U.S. when in the 60s. She actually was uh, living with boxer Sugar Ray Robinson, went back to London and worked as a call girl, got involved in a big bad scandal um, with Parliament, and then uh, she and um, McLean, Robert, or excuse me, Robert de Grimston made this thing. Robert, Robert de Grimston was, um, he was actually called Robert Moore, that was his original name, and Robert de Grimston is what she wanted to call him, and so they did. They got married in 64, they created their version of Scientology, which they called Compulsion Analysis, and so on and so on. Uh, she got him out of the church, out of her ch the church uh, much later, and um, so on. She was the murky, mysterious lady at the real head of the cult. I never even knew about her. I started hearing rumors that she existed uh, maybe one or two years before I got out. I got out in 91, and then I heard confirmation that she had passed uh, in 2005 because I'm good friends with the uh, mortician who uh, deals with all deaths down in southern Utah. Uh, and he told me the circumstances of that, and that was hilarious. I mean, I don't want to be mean or anything, but boy, um, best friends for all of its lack of cult. And there, again, as always, no expose here, guys. No malice whatsoever, no ill intent at all. But they were they were high strung about how, how Marianne needed to be handled. So that's all I'm going to say about that. Um, so... Um, Back to the process, you know, they got together. They were members of the Church of Scientology in the 60s. They were left, 
they, they, they made this little splinter group called Compulsions Analysis, uh, later developed something into the Process Church, which was formally established, I think got a charter in London in 66. Uh, all the members, there were, I don't know how many, I don't know the number, they lived in a place called Mayfair, which is in West London, and before they actually wound up in Stuhl, which is X-T-U-L in Mexico, uh, on the Yucatan Peninsula. So this is all part of the Wikipedia page. You could read right along. This is some of the stuff I know about this, some of the stuff I don't know. What this doesn't say is that they felt like they had a, a revelatory, almost Pentecostal experience down in Stuhl, where they survived a massive, massive hurricane. Uh, came out of it okay. They had brought some dogs down, the dogs were okay, and so on and so on. Now, there are some things uh, that, uh, there's been rumors that the, 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 the process and whatever state it was in at the time was involved with Charles Manson. It was not at all, not at all. The only possible loose connection is they may have like had recorded an article from Manson before he became a, a, a terrible murderer, um, maybe something like that. I'm not entirely certain, but his image does appear in an old magazine that the process published, um, possibly along with some of the words that he had, he had taught. So, um, so Marianne and Robert, they got together, they set this thing up, they were kind of told that they were a little too crazy. Uh, they tur turned their group into this thing called the process, which became increasingly religious. Uh, oh, hey, this article says so. 25 members of the process moved into Mayfair and then probably near, the, near most of them uh, moved down to um, Stuhl, uh, and uh, they. this is an interesting little uh, little tidbit here I want to read to you. Okay. Um, they said about establishing a community, which would they'd only remain there, remain there for a month. They were opposed by some locals. Um, it was, this is interesting, uh, it was there, it was while there that the group clarified its hierarchical structure with the de Grimstons at the top, who were referred to as the Omega, followed by those regarded as masters, then priests, then prophets, and finally, quote, messengers. In late September, a tropical hurricane devastated their settlement, and while some of them elected to stay, the de Grimstons and most of their followers decided to leave. One of the young men that I grew up with, he was several years older than me. Uh, he was born down there, by the way. The Yucatan experience remained an important part of the process church's own mythology after that point. There'd be a crucial division within the group between those who'd gone through the stool experience and those who did not, and so on and so on. Um, they wound up back in London, then they came over to the States. Uh, they um, spent some time in Italy uh, in a place called Telema Abbey, which was actually where a commune established by Alastair Crowley had been. Yeah, he was a British occultist, guys. Um, and then they wound up in mostly in the United States with some stop-offs in Toronto. They wound up with kind of a, an HQ in New Orleans with the HQ was a, a, a coffee shop and so on. So a couple of things that you might like to know. Um, so let's read, talk about the breakdown. So yes, they established their, um, their headquarters in uh, New Orleans. They, they had a cafe. They brought people in to do this kind of analysis that, they, that I was talking about earlier. Um, and the, to kind of help people get a handle on their own personalities and their own traumas and their own baggage, you could say. Um, it was called, a, of course, compulsions analysis. They were trying to anal analyze why people had these compulsions. Um, and so they, in these cafes, they'd help people, you know, these, the, 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 not the found, well, the founders probably early on. And then later on messengers and fo folks like that, they would help. Uh, people just walk in and have a coffee and then get their own compulsions analyzed. Uh, there was a time in New York that my mother would do tarot readings and other energy type occult occultism. Um, she says that she worked with Robert De Niro. She called him Bobby. I don't know if that's true. Maybe it is. Probably did. 
Um, they, uh, they, they used to wear big black cloaks, like I've talked about, and these kind of iron crosses and stuff. And that was one of the reasons why the prosecutor uh, in the Manson trial um, made it such... It was, it was fairly easy for him to make a connection between them uh, and the Satanist Manson group. Um, but uh, that was not a, a true connection. Absolutely not. Unequivocally, not. These guys were not murderers by any means. They were not uh, involved in anything of the sort. So, nope, you can just put that right out your head. Didn't work. It doesn't work. Didn't happen. Now, um, as I've mentioned several times, there was a lot of uh, partner trading, uh, lover trading, and stuff like that, usually by the um, order of, or by at least with the permission of uh, Marianne and Robert as well. But then, uh, in 74, uh, Robert... Um, was having an affair with a woman named Morgana. Uh, Marianne got rid of him. Um, they they also were disagreeing on the direction for the for their church, uh, which had probably eighty to hundred members of that at the time. And Marianne got Robert to leave. Robert left. He brought some of his adherents along to could keep up this thing called the process. But she um, kept most of the members. They stuck to her. She had a very strong personality, very very charismatic, from what I hear. She renamed it the Foundation Church of the Millennium. In 77, it became the Foundation Faith of the Millennium. And in 80, when I was six years old, the Foundation Faith of God. So for my whole life, as far as I can recall, it was always called the Foundation Faith of God. Uh, shorthand referred to as the Foundation. So uh, they referred to themselves as a Christian church. Um, and there was a lot of um, really Anglican type of influence. There was a healing ministry. There was a there was a, a visiting children ministry. Something I'll talk about in, in a very soon upcoming episode, probably next episode. Uh, lots of um, lots of hierarchy there. You could move up the hierarchy as long as you're uh, both dedicated and effective in what you were assigned to do. And uh, the little note here um, at, near the end of the article uh, in Wikipedia says, in 1982, the Foundation Faith of God moved its base to Utah where it established an animal rescue refuge in Kanab. That is mostly accurate. Mostly. What it doesn't say is that they'd actually had a base in Arizona for some time. They had a ranch in Arizona, which I've talked about, but it's very important to the future stories that I'm going to tell here, um, that they called Faith Canyon. And it was in this secluded pocket canyon uh, ranch area, really near Kirkland, Arizona, which is an hour or so from Prescott. They had been there for some time, and it was big-ish, but not all that big. They were, um, they they kept rescued and dogs that they were rehabilitating, cats as well, birds of all kinds. Uh, they had a, a really nice orchard there, a very small lake, very small, probably just a big pond, but fairly deep. Um, it would, it, I'd walk into it, and I'd, it'd go over my head. Uh, but it was a beautiful, really, really quite a lovely secluded valley there. Uh, they outgrew it very, very quickly, and then they did buy a ranch, and it probably was in 82, but they hadn't really fully moved uh, until uh, probably 84. Um, and then uh, even in 84, or really I should say 1986, my first year when I went out to um, Angel Canyon, which had been, they they'd bought uh, Kanab Canyon, they hadn't really fully moved there. There were still plenty of people over in, in, in Faith Canyon in Arizona, uh, there was a lot of buildings being built. There was a lot of infrastructure still underway. A lot of water supply pipe needing to be dug for, which was us, you know, dug, dig the big, big trenches to lay them. That was, it was still underway. So this simplifies it quite a lot. 
Uh, it says in 1993, the organization changed its name to Best Friends Animal Society. That oh, Wow, that really um, glosses over a lot. It was first called Best Friends Animal Sanctuary um, for exactly that purpose, that it's right on the nose. It was a sanctuary and a, and a blessed one. Um, and then actually it was more like 94 or 95 that it actually removed all reference to religious ideas from its statutes. It was a legal process. It entirely... Um, established itself as a, as a, a non-religious in any way um, charitable organization. And in the last line of the breakdown, it says, in 2005, McLean died, which is true. And the management of her charity was left to her second husband, Gabriel DePire, a former Foundation Faith of God church member. Uh, the thing is, Gabriel was the figurehead leader from as early as I can remember, from, his, from at least uh, the time of, I was age seven. I, I was taught that he was the leader. Um, he, he had long, fluffy, blonde hair, a long, soft-looking beard. He wore, wore flowing, flowing clothes, and I do not think it was a mistake on his part, or coincidental or accidental on his part, that he sort of resembled the Western uh, ideal of the Christ, of Jesus Christ at all. Um, I think it's quite gross, honestly. Uh, when he speaks, he speaks like this, you know, Hello there, Jared. It's nice to see you today. It's been some time. Won't you tell me about your day? Oh, you've been working outside, digging the trenches. Oh, thank you for that. We appreciate your hard work. Well, if you appreciate my hard work, maybe you shouldn't make me work for 12 hours. Anyway, so, yeah, he, he, he'd been the, the figurehead leader with Marianne behind the scenes, pushing at all the things, and then um, making things work, and also probably browbeating people. My mother was her handmaiden, as far as I know, until my mother died in uh, 1999. And, um, yep, that's pretty much that. Uh, so that's my kind of take on things. There are a couple more quick things, and then we're going to take a break for uh, station identification, you could say, just for sponsor identification. Um, at you, Come and look at the article if you want to see the, the evolution, sort of, of the teachings and activities. Um, there were baptisms, which were actual baptisms, which I've talked about. There were um, uh, marriages, and there was a, a Sunday celebration. It's not really called the Sabbath assembly. It was a celebration. Um, and people. there were anointings. There was anointings with oil and ash and uh, stuff like that. Uh, and they had a very interesting uh, logo, which is on the artwork for this uh, podcast. Um, it's influenced lots of things. Um, it's influenced some bands, including Skinny Puppy, the industrial music band, and so on. So um, it, it, this is truly an actual history of an actual cult that was for real. Uh, they practiced actual cult practices with culty principles and rituals. And I talked about some of the other stuff before, um, about how we couldn't talk before uh, our morning prayer uh, assembly and stuff like that. Um, I talked about some of the rituals that were involved there. Guys, it was an actual cult and commune. So if, if you were wondering if it was for real, go check it out. I recommend you uh, you go down the the whole, just, just, just go down the internet, follow the internet. But anything that refers to this cult as having been Satanist, discount it. It's not true. Even anything that says, some people say, just some people do say that, but it just wasn't true. And so now we'll pause real quick for a sponsor moment, and then we'll get into some other Brian, Life of Brian stuff. Okay. So we talked about some specific history stuff, um, but this is the life of Brian's bright side part. I've talked about some of the good stuff that has come out of the cult for me. You know, and 
it would help to set some context. I've already said that I isolated myself. I made some big mistakes about how I mourned my brother's death, um, which I, if, if I still, I don't have an emotional regret, but philosophically I still regret it because I know that it was the wrong choice. But I also know that through grace, uh, that wrong choice has been made good for me. I've learned a ton from it and, and I'm very, very grateful for it. Um, isolation, neglect, physical abuse, emotional abuse, not good stuff in general. Uh, certainly um, hard labor for uh, no particular reward. Um, a lack of somebody I could turn to uh, in, in any kind of trust, uh, never feeling any kind of unconditional love like any human being is entitled to. Um, just not having any of that foundation that any human being needs in order to develop in a normal way. Why I am the way I am, I don't really know. Um, but I'm blessed and I'm happy and delighted to be overall an okay dude. So, some of the good things that we did in the cult. We'll start with birthdays. Birthdays, that's right. Okay, so I've already talked about I learned how to hang drywall, right? And I talked about um, how, you know, we would camp for two months a year uh, in the summers, hot summers of Southern Utah. Uh, and that might seem like an idyllic thing, but guys, this is two months, five years in a row, and it's not really all that comfortable. But the truth is, you know, when you're young, you can take it. Your body can take it. It doesn't feel so hard to lie on the ground. You're in a sleeping bag, so you stay relatively warm, even those desert nights were cold. You know, so it seems idyllic, but guys, it's the idyll idyllic stuff, it wears off pretty dang quick. And it's a lot less idyllic when you have had no choice in it when you have not been consulted about it, when it's not framed as any kind of fun thing, it's framed as it's time to go to work. Um, that this is just inevitable, just like Thanos and his snap, right? Uh, or Iron Man, if whatever you want. Um, so no, no good. But I did learn work ethic. I learned lots of interesting skills. And overall, I learned a total lack of fear when it comes to learning to do technical hands-on labor. Um, save me a lot of money. That's great. But birthdays are a completely separate thing. I had good birthdays sometimes. We'll start with a not so good birthday. My fifth birthday, I don't remember where I was. Um, it would make sense if I were in New York somewhere, probably. Um, but it may have been DC for the hot minute that I was there. Um, I was barely, you know, just kind of indirectly aware that it was my birthday. And uh, I was served a treat of overly sweetened iced coffee for my birthday treat. And that was the sum total of my birthday at age five. My friends, that was disgusting. Gross beyond description. It was horrible and I don't recommend it. Some of y'all out there might like a nice iced coffee. You go you, my friends. I have hated coffee ever since. I've hated the smell. I've hated anything that reminds me of the flavor, including the flavor. Uh, I once mistook um, mocha-flavored ice cream for chocolate ice cream. My friends, that's that's a terrible, terrible thing, and I'm still traumatized. I'm okay. I'm okay. I talked about it to my therapist, and I didn't. I don't have a therapist. I never did. But I'm okay. I'm all right, but I still hate coffee. That was my first birthday that I re can remember anything about. The next birthday I remember things about is when I was 11. Um, I didn't really have birthdays much until then, between that time at all. Um, I knew when my birthday was, and I would, I think that there was a birthday cake 
sometimes involved, but it was fairly, you know, a blip, barely a blip on the radar. But in Dallas, things were different. When I moved there when I was around 11, that's where the kids were. That was called the Children's Center. Um, and there was some attempts made to sort of make things okay sometimes for the kids. And those attempts were inadequate and they missed the entire train when it comes to being, you know, trustworthy and comforting and loving and giving kids safe and affectionate physical touch and all that good stuff, establishing that important central need that kids have or feel, uh, you know, of, of, of emotional fulfillment and unconditional love. I've said that a lot. But birthdays were fun. They were a big to-do, um, actually. It was uh, fairly okay, honestly. We, you, we'd have a cake, usually a big one or a couple of big ones, um, and some ice cream as well. And it was a real party. Like, if it was my birthday, if it was somebody else's birthday, that was their moment. It was a couple of hours. The attention was on them. It was entertainment. Um, it was really, really a fun thing. Everybody was gathered for the... For the, for the cake and ice cream. And there were a couple of presents sometimes too. And sometimes those presents were just goofy presents from the other kids wrapped up in like a blanket or a pillowcase or newspaper or something. And that's fine. But sometimes there were actual presents, you know, and, and it was on or around my birthday that I would usually get maybe like 20 bucks from my mother. Some For a couple of years, she sent me some things here and there. Like she sent me a denim jacket once, um, which was very sweet. Uh, my 11th birthday, my dad happened to still be living in Dallas. He moved soon after, so he was there. Uh, as far as I know, that's the only birthday that he was at, but I may be wrong on that. Uh, I appreciate his effort very much. Um, but it, when he wasn't there, which is most of the time, I'd also get money from him or a gift as well in a card or a package or something. My grandma, my mother's mother, would send me money. And then my grandma, my dad's mom, wouldn't send me anything sometimes. Most of the time she wouldn't. She'd send, she'd send a card though sometimes because she was slowly chilling out. She'd, she had been not great to my dad, unfortunately. But I think she mellowed a lot in my interactions with her or o over the years so that my interactions with her were fairly positive. So, um, but the cult, what it did was cake, ice cream, everybody would gather, there'd be singing, it would be goofy and loud and crazy. And often, um, some group of kids would take it upon themselves. I don't think that they were assigned to do it. I think they would just take it upon themselves to uh, write a song and perform it for the birthday kid. Um, and it wasn't every year, but it happened with some regularity. Uh, I don't, maybe, maybe it happened with regularity in that every kid got it at least once. Because so, I only remember doing it for Asa and Bart one time when they turned 16. I, it was done for me when I was about 12 or 13, maybe 14. I was a little older, so I wasn't too mortified by what they did for me, which I'll sing for you in a second. I was involved in a couple of others. Um, that's kind of nice, though. Even though it was deeply mortifying to have these kids performing a song where they expressed, you know, things about you that they'd noticed, uh, your, you know, your habits or your behaviors, um, and they would um, do it to the tune of a popular song. So whenever year it was that I got this song sung for me, <clears throat> it was called Jared Garrett, and it was to the tune of Amadeus. Uh, so you know the song, Amadeus, 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 right? So the girls decided to make it Jared Garrett, Jared Garrett, Jared Garrett, Jared Garrett, Jared Garrett, oh, 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 Jared Garrett. Ooh, rock me, Jared Garrett. Anyway, you're welcome for the falsetto. 
I don't remember many of the lines, but I remember they referred to my Galaxy Wash jeans, which I was incredibly proud of. Galaxy Wash jeans, my friends, are black jeans that had been washed in a certain way with bleach, rocks, or I don't know what it was, to make them look like they were covered in the galaxy, covered by little white stars everywhere, constellations. So they referred to that, which was wonderful, I guess. <laughs> but even though I felt embarrassed to have all that attention on me, it was really nice to have all that attention on me. And I remember it so well because they had spent time thinking about me. And that was lovely. So birthdays were good. Singing songs, sometimes doing skits, um, and sometimes holidays were good too. Before Christmas, uh, the, the night before Christmas, Christmas Eve, of course, is that what we call it. Hello, Jared, use real good words here. We would do fake Christmas, which is where we would all bring some sort of goofy, goofy gift. It's just a white elephant Christmas, as it turns out. We called it fake Christmas. Uh, whatever kids lived in the house, we would gather around the tree and we'd exchange these gifts in a random way. I mean, we got batteries, we got toothpicks, we got beat up uh, Hot Wheels cars, we got all kinds of stupid weird things, a broken flashlight, a rock sometimes. The idea was to make people laugh. Um, <clears throat> and that was fun too. And so the holidays were sometimes fun. Halloween tended to be good. We were allowed to dress up, dress up and we often were taken to trick or treat. Um, when I was younger, I don't remember who would do it, but I was, when I was quite young, I think the first time I remember trick-or-treating, I was eight or nine and it was in Denver, uh, wound up with a giant pillowcase full of candy. Whoa, boy. I can just remember this giant pile of stuff and I, I it certainly gave me diabetes or at least cavities or some sort of illness, probably organ failure when I'm younger. Anyway, um, <clears throat> but growing up, you know, I, I was trick-or-treating until I was about, um, I think 13 or 14 and uh, Jonathan or Jason would drive us around the richer neighborhoods and we'd, we'd stock right the crap up on, on candy. And that was fun. You know, we dressed up as all kinds of things I dressed up and we'd sometimes do a little Halloween party either at Dixie uh, where the boys lived and after the girls moved out or we'd sometimes, I think we did it once over at the, um, at the school building on Bowser street uh, there in Dallas. Um, <clears throat> one of the pictures I remember and it's buried somewhere is me dressed up as kind of a hobo, uh, wearing an oversized suit coat. I, some One of the girls has put, I think probably Robin, give me stubble with a mascara, um, makeup, brush. Um, Adam is dressed as Billy Idol punk type guy. Um, there are lots of different ones. Probably Tim is dressed as a swordsman because that's what he always wanted to be. Uh, lots of different interesting ones. Somebody was a greaser um, and so on and so forth. Several witches, of course, on the girls' end. So that was fun. Halloween, Christmas, Thanksgiving was fine. Um, as long as Susan, who later my dad married when I was around 10, um, as long as she was cooking, we had a good Thanksgiving. She was, um, she was incredibly good at cooking turkeys. I've learned to cook a turkey from her. My turkey is moist, my friends. Uh, yep, yep, yep. I'm good at it. Uh, so the holidays were also a nice highlight. Um, and, uh, you know, there was, there was, there's no way that we didn't know what normal should be, what normal looked like for many, not of course all, but many other kids in the world, certainly in the communities that we lived in, even though we were fairly separate from them. We knew what normal should be like, and none of our life was that at all, except for sometimes holidays felt a little bit normal. <clears throat> Heavily populated, big groups, extra loud, yes, but a little bit normal, right? Then a couple of other interesting things that were really good that came out of the cult of the experience there. Number one is the friendships. Um, now, I've already talked a lot about how 
I self-isolated a lot. And honestly, I don't know exactly why, if there was some sort of event that occurred that, that, that caused that. Um, but I did self-isolate. I saw myself as a loner. I uh, cut myself off from contact, uh, any kind of excessive contact or unnecessary contact. I, I would, you know, I could get involved in. So I, I just stayed on my own as much as I could. Uh, but I still did have friendships and I still have a great deal of affection for all the people I grew up with. Even, even some of them whom I don't necessarily, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't like seek them out to become friends with them or to deepen a friendship with them. Um, I still have affection for them. We, you know, we had a shared experience, but in some cases they really are just friends, sweet people. And, you know, as I started as, at around age 16 to, to look around me a little more and try to, um, make some more connections and become, become a human being who could function in the outside world. Cause that was my plan. But within the next year or two, I'd be out. I realized I needed to, you know, be better at talking to people and become a person who, who could talk to you, get people to talk to me and stuff. You know, I started reaching out and becoming better friends. So with Aston, Vanessa, with Mark, uh, with Manuel and Isaac and all these other folks, I did become better friends. You know, it was nice with the shared experience and, and, and I, and I love them dearly. Um, I have some very fond feelings for Robin. She was a very sweet lady for Kara, Cyan, and many others, Eve as well. Um, they just, they were very sweet and good people who, uh, you know, we just went through this experience together. So I value that. And it's probably partly some of those friendships and some of those better interactions as I was getting a little older and a little more self, um, determining in a way, uh, that helped me not be completely off the rocker, you could say. Another good thing, honestly, for me was all the alone time. Um, now, it, it, uh, we're over half an hour, I'm sorry, but you know, here we go. Uh, we'll, we'll finish off soon. It was useful for me to be alone in my head. A and today, it's not so common for young people to have boring alone time, quiet time. Um, but I mean, I, I spent hours in the forest in Pennsylvania by myself, wandering the, uh, the, the pasture just downhill from the house in Pennsylvania, strolling around the pond there, uh, walking around in the snow and the ice, jumping around off the, the, the low hills and walls there. Did the same thing in Denver. I, I mean, I was also stuck with Mark and Manuel, which back at the time I felt stuck with them. Now I'm privileged to have been spent, had that time with them. Uh, more or less, although sometimes I would have been better off being alone. Um, but I still wandered those big fields uh, after we got out of the city alone. I had a lot of alone time. In Dallas, I uh, I was part of the couple of people who shoved a piece of plywood up in the garage ceiling, uh, just on the rafters. There were, the rafters were exposed there, and we stuck a piece of plywood. And we made an easy way to get up there. Not a ladder exactly, but we found a really easy way to climb up the wall and get onto this this platform that we'd made in the rafters. And I spent hours up there reading, and I spent hours um, wandering the streets uh, in my thought, lost in my own thoughts. And I spent hours while riding my bike and sometimes walking, but mostly riding my bike up to the library, the Oaklawn branch of the Dallas Public Library. There, uh, that alone time was critical for me. You know, I got to know my voice. I got to know who I was and what was important to me. And, and, and it really helped that I had stories that I could read and really chew on them and think about them and, and figure out what was, what, what, what was resonating with me 
you know, why the heroism was so important to me, why heroes going through crap, but, you know, pushing on and, and deciding to just keep going until they accomplish what they wanted to, why that was important to me. That quiet time in my head, that quiet time around me, the, the ability that I, I, I developed to meditate as well, were so important to me. Um, I became friends with myself. I also became disgusted with myself in many ways. I, I didn't like some of the things that I did with my on my own in my own private times. But, you know, having that quiet time helped me understand why I didn't like those things, what it was about me that didn't like that. And, and while I was younger, I never really got deep enough to understand deeply what was wrong with the things that I sometimes did or why they disgusted me or why the other things that other people did disgusted me. Today, I can look back and I can distinctly remember those quiet times in my head, to remember those conversations I used to have and these stories I would tell myself and see the truths that I was, if not uncovering, at least preparing to be uncovered by me later in life in these last 10 to 15 to 20 years or so. Um, so I, I wouldn't give up those quiet alone times for anything. And I would like to continue to give my kids quiet alone times without electronics, times that they can be outside, inside, in their own head, talking to themselves, getting to know themselves, finding out what's deeply important to them. Um, I, I've encouraged all of my kids to go take some quiet time, especially during the stressful times of school. So there were good things that were came out of this cult. To recap, birthdays, holidays, uh, some of those friendships, those sweet, tender relationships, and the alone time. Um, unfortunately, <laughs> that's unfortunately about it. <laughs> uh, in addition to the things that I've mentioned in previous episodes. So I hope this episode has been interesting to you. I feel like I may have rambled a little bit, but I thought, you know, it might be nice to be really specific about the history, which I also went into a little bit in the last episode. But I just wanted to give you the facts out of out of uh, the articles online. And then, of course, you know, look on the bright side. Like Brian says, always look on the bright side of life. Anyway, thanks for tuning in. Uh, this may be the worst episode. It may be the best episode. It may just be an episode. We'll, uh, we'll be back probably in a week, maybe just over a week, to talk about the children's ministry. You're going to want to tune in to next episode, episode 34. Uh, I'm going to reveal a thing I've never ever revealed in public ever. The only people who know about this are the people I grew up with and my family. So tune in for episode 34 of the Children's Ministry in about a week. Uh, thank you for tuning in today. Again, let me know on Twitter, Facebook, um, whatever, or email how you found out about this crazy weird podcast. Until then, uh, stay friendly, stay happy, and keep looking for people to help my friends. <laughs>